So I want to thank Beth Ann for the introduction. Uh, as she said, my name is Father Bryce, B-R-Y-C-E, Sibley, S-I-B-L-E-Y, and I'm a priest of the Diocese of Lafayette. I've been a priest for 22 years, um, but for the past year, I have been teaching over at Notre Dame Seminary on Carrollton. Uh, I teach moral theology, and I also do spiritual direction with a number of the guys there. Uh, and so I know Tom Neal, and as you heard from the story, because of my connection, and uh, he offered or he suggested that I give the retreat today. And so I had a free day, and I said, yeah, so it's really great to be with you. I know uh, a number of you, um, so, but it's, it's a great to see so many people. Um, I, I, I have three talks today. I guess I'll give you the layout of what we're doing. So I, I'm scheduled three talks, and we're going to give about an hour for each. Am I going to be able to talk for an hour? Probably not. But if there's any questions or comments, we can maybe have a little dialogue. Then we'll take a half an hour break, come back, and y'all can go pray, read, do what you need to do. Uh, come back, have another hour talk, have lunch at noon, we'll have a little hour for lunch. Come back, have another hour of discussion, and then about 2 o'clock have Mass, a blessing before the school year, and then hopefully be done by 2.45 or 3 o'clock. So I, I want to give you time to be able to pray and reflect. And during those half an hour breaks, if there's anyone who wants to talk to me, I'm happy to do so. Just realize that there are 140 people here, so I don't really think I can talk to everybody, but I'll do my best to answer questions or to, to have a, a brief dialogue. The reason or the, the motive behind my topic today is a topic that I'm sure a lot of you have heard about, and who knows, maybe uh, in previous years there have been retreats on this. The motive is, yes, it's for y'all, but as teachers, and myself as a teacher, we're really here to serve the students, particularly at Mount Carmel. Um, I'm from Lafayette. We don't necessarily have a lot of separate sex schools. Uh, y'all teach girls. Um, and, and I want to try to talk a little bit about what it's like to, to minister to young women and, and sort of have uh, tools to be able to be effective, or most effective, hopefully, in dealing with some of the struggles that I think a lot of young women face. Uh, you say, well, Father, you work with seminarians. How do you know what the young women face? Well, for the previous 11 years, I worked as the priest, the chaplain, and the campus minister over at the University of Louisiana, the Raging Cajuns over in Lafayette. And a majority of my work was working with young women. Uh, I would generally do five to seven hours of spiritual direction a day. That's why my hair is gray prematurely. Uh, no, but it was a joy and a delight. Uh, I did a lot of work with young women, and I think over the time, came to understand a bit, as much as I think anyone can, about the mind and the hearts of young women today. And particularly now, you're working with Generation Z, which is even a little bit different than I think uh, the millennials were. And so trying to offer some of those insights, but that's going to really be at the last talk that we're going to do today. I want to, though, address the first two to ourselves uh, as teachers. If we're going to effectively minister, if we're going to effectively teach and try to bring these young women to Christ and to better know their identity, we've got to be pretty secure in ourselves. You simply cannot give what you do not have. Now, when I put all these talks together, 
realizing that I was going to be talking to a majority of women. Uh, so a lot of what I'm going to talk about is basically geared towards women, but we have guys here too, so I'm going to try to do my best to, to balance it all out. So take what you can, uh, and through prayer and reflection, we'll integrate it and see where we, we, we come out. So what I really want to do is base most of what we're talking about today uh, on one of my favorite scripture passages, and that is John chapter 4, the long passage of Christ's encounter with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. We're going to also look at another passage that I'm going to weave through, actually two other passages I'm going to weave through, but this is going to be our anchor. So if you brought your Bible or you have your little Bible app on your phone and you want to take some time to reflect and meditate, it's going to be focused on John chapter 4. And it's a long passage, but I'm going to go ahead and read it so we can begin and situate it to refresh our, our minds and our hearts about this very intimate encounter Christ has and then go sort of through three stages by looking at uh, some themes through this passage. So why don't we go ahead and begin with this reading. It's John chapter 4. Now when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was with his journey, sat down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it you, Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and his sons and his cattle? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and he whom you now have is not your husband. This you said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem 
will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Such Father seeks to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ, and when he comes, he will show us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but none said, What do you wish? Or, What are you talking with her? Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the city and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples besought him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him any food? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are four months, then comes the harvest? I tell you, lift up your eyes and see how the fields are already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you did not labor. Others had labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believe because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of your words that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Jesus Christ. It's a long passage. It's a lot there. And so we're going to do our best to really dive into some of the more salient points uh, that I think are important for us today. And the first one, and this is really sort of the topic or the focus for this first talk, is that one line, the very beginning, that when Jesus sat there at the well, which has nuptial symbolism in the Old Testament, it was the sixth hour. So, again, I'm not an expert in Jewish timekeeping, but sixth hour is six hours from 6 a.m. So it means that Jesus was there at noon. The heat of the day with the sun beating down. It was at that time that the woman came to draw water. I'm sure many of you have heard this, that for the Jew at the time, or I'm sure for a lot of people who are familiar with drawing water at the well in villages, this is not a customary time to go and draw water. Normally, women would go early in the day 
to draw water because A, it was cooler and to bring the water back so heavy would have been easier, but also you want to get water for the whole of your day. So why was it that the Samaritan woman went out to draw water at noon? You can infer that she went there so that no one would have to see her. She wouldn't have to encounter anyone. Many of you say, well, Father, I'm introverted. I like to go when I'm to talk to anybody. That's why I go shopping uh, uh, you know, at Walmart at, at 7 o'clock in the morning or at 9 o'clock at night. You don't have to see anybody, particularly as a priest. Everybody wants to talk to you. Sometimes I just want to buy my, my broccoli and my, my towels. I don't want to talk to everybody. But it was not the reason this woman did this. It's not necessarily because she's introverted. It's because if Jesus knew that she was with her fifth husband, you can imagine the whole entire town knew. Now, even though she was a Samaritan, not a Jew, they still followed the Ten Commandments. And this woman was living in a state of sin. Everyone in the town, I'm sure in the small town, would have known that. And so if she would have gone in the morning, chances are people would have whispered and talked about her. And so she went later in the day, even though it was hot, even though it was going to be more arduous, because she was filled with shame. Shame, not wanting people to see her. And so you can imagine that she was surprised to see this man there encountering her and entering into dialogue with her. And so what I want to talk about today, this first talk, is something that I think particularly over the course of, let's say, the past 10 years, we've heard a lot more about, and that is the phenomenon of shame. Uh, I remember when I first started working more intently with young women, I kept hearing this theme of women who had really encountered this shame and insecurity. Well, finally, one of them said, well, Father, you know who you sound like? You sound like Brene Brown. I never heard who Brene Brown was. So I went and watched her little videos and realized, yeah, this woman has a lot to say. How many of you have read or seen some of her videos? Raise your hand. Okay, it's not too many. But so Brene Brown is actually from Texas. She kind of, she has a podcast now, but she kind of came to fame about 10, 12 years ago with a TED Talk uh, called The Power of Vulnerability. Uh, she comes off as a pop sort of psychologist these days, but her real expertise, her doctoral work, is in the phenomenon of shame and studying what shame is and how it affects us, both as men and also as women. And, and, and so she makes this distinction, which I think is really important, between guilt and shame. So what is guilt? Guilt is sorrow for something that I've done. Let's say that I snap at somebody or I take something that doesn't belong to me. I commit a sin. I feel guilty for it. Well, that's a good thing. If you don't feel guilty for these things, that maybe you might be a sociopath. You, have a, you don't have a conscience. Hopefully everybody here has a conscience. Shame instead is guilt or sorrow for who I am. For who I am. I am ashamed to be this person. And as a result, I feel unlovable, unworthy of love. 
and shame. I want to hide from other people. I feel exposed. I feel vulnerable. And shame can have a lot of different sources. Mainly, I'll sum it up by it is because of things that we've done. Maybe we were sexually active when we were young. Maybe we struggle with our own sexual proclivities. Maybe uh, we have a drinking problem. Whatever it is. A lot of times, shame revolves around sex and sexuality, but can be around a lot of things. But instead of, I'm sorry for what I've done, I'm sorry for who I am, I'm a bad person. Or also, it can be as a result of things that were done to us, particularly forms of abuse, sexual abuse, and bullying. These things were done to me. I'm ashamed of who I am because obviously I'm a bad person that this happened to me. And somehow we blame ourselves. We turn in on ourselves. But ultimately, shame is makes us want to hide. Hide certain elements of our life or hide our own very selves. And so this woman, because of these relationships that she's been in, the one that she's in now, is filled with shame. She doesn't want to be seen. She hides. And so she goes to the well at a time that she believes no one will be there. Now, I'm also going to say, and we're going to get to this later on, uh, shame is, is tied to what we're going to call, we'll say, insecurity. I'm ashamed of who I am. And so there are different ways that people who are filled with shame will act out. Yes, they'll hide themselves, but they will also tend to, and women do this a lot, they'll compare themselves to other women. Look how beautiful she is. Her life is great. Everything's wonderful. And it leads often to compare and despair. I'm a terrible person. And the shame and the self sort of deprecating activity just sort of spirals downward. And I'll tell you right now, and you probably know this, 95% of the young women you work with lives are consumed by shame. Consumed by shame. And it may be because of things they've done. It may be because of things that are done to them. Uh, or situations they find themselves in. If people knew that, you know, my dad was an alcoholic or my family was broken or we have this history in our family, uh, these bad things in our family, I'm filled with shame. But, but in this tied to the comparison, what do you all think is the number one thing that causes this comparison, this despair and the shame in young women today? What do you think it is? Social media, particularly Instagram. Look at the vacation she's going on. Look how pretty her hair is. Look at all the friends she has and the fun she's having. I'm terrible, no one loves me. Social media does it. And I'm saying social media can do good, but in general, what we've seen, this astronomical rise in anxiety, uh, mental illness and struggles, emotionalness in young women, and most everybody connects it to social media, particularly image-driven social media. But regardless of the sources, and I really encourage you to, to read or to watch some of these videos from Renee Brown or listen to her podcast. Uh, I'm not going to agree with everything she says, but a lot of her early stuff was really, really solid. Um, it, it leads us to hide. And I think that's the real thing I want to focus on. Shame leads us to hide things that we do or we've done. But ultimately, it makes us hide ourselves so that we can't be seen. 
What makes ourselves hide from God makes us hide from others, particularly people who know us, who love us, because there's a fear. I'm sure all of us, maybe there's a time when we're maybe feeling guilt, and that guilt could be turning into shame, and guilt's good. I don't want to say this at all. Guilt is good. It's good that we feel bad for the things that we've done. Hopefully it leads us to repentance. But if we just give in to the guilt all the time and it turns into shame, that's not a good thing. And I've seen it. People who maybe have done something wrong years ago, and they feel so much shame, and they come to confession. Father's been 40 years, and I haven't been to confession because I did something I'm ashamed of. And I want to say, I could probably give you about a two-to-one odds I know what he did. And I tell them, or I'll wait till they tell me, and I'm like, okay, here's three Hail Marys. It's not that big of a deal. We're human. We struggle. It it's, it's, it's blows their minds. But all their lives, because of this, they hide. And some of the times I can understand. I do a lot of work with victims of sexual abuse. A lot of your students are victims of sexual abuse. But they hide it. And it eats them alive. And they blame themselves. It's obviously their fault. No one wants to be seen. And so in my experience, when someone is living in shame, I can usually spot it in about five minutes talking to somebody, guy or girl, because men can live in shame too. Because we have an epidemic of pornography right now. Being honest with y'all, of guys under the age of 30, I'd say 90% of guys are addicted to pornography or at least have a severely bad habit. I don't want to claim addiction because that's a sort of a very specific psychological or scientific term. You walk around with shame. So a lot of the guys cannot make decisions to get into relationships or into the seminary because they feel bad for who they are and they know that one day their spouse or their seminary formators are going to find out they got a really bad porn addiction. Not only that they're looking to porn, but also what they're looking at. That's really, really bad. So we hide ourselves. So men do it too. It's how it works. It's just how it works. And so they do that. And we've got to be able, as we'll see the spot, we're not here to judge. Oh, I think this person is living behind a facade. A lot of particularly times victims of sexual abuse, the way they dress, the way they sort of cover themselves up and so that others really can't see them. Again, we're not here to judge. But we got to be able to pick up the signs when someone is not really willing to allow themselves to be seen. Again, I also want to say that we don't need to put all of our stuff out there. There are things that we do we want to keep to ourselves. We need to have good professional and personal boundaries. But there's a difference between the healthy holding things to ourselves and hiding from others because we feel that we're unloved and we're unlovable. Now, the other side, and this is a little bit harder to see, I think I've seen a lot of young women do this, who are filled with shame, they come off as like, everything's great. I'm so happy. Let me help you. Let me do all these wonderful things. And maybe they're very extroverted and sanguine, but maybe they're doing all these things as sort of a smokescreen so you can't tell how insecure they are. Because that shame leads to a deep insecurity. Insecurity means I don't feel safe. And so I'm going to put up this facade that everything's great, everything's perfect. But sometimes if you're really living shame, you could tell when someone can read through that. And so you're going to hide yourself even more, or maybe put yourself even more. Look how great everything, everything's perfect. But in reality, it's really not. 
And so it's that fear of being exposed, the fear of being judged, the fear of being vulnerable. That's a word that we hear a lot. Brene Brown talks a lot about it. Vulnerability, the word comes from the Latin word vulnus, which means wound. So we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to be hurt. And so what do we do? We put up walls. We put up disguises. If you're into science fiction, put up your force field. Force fields are hard because it looks like you're great, but when you get up close, boom, you're knocked back. It's not you can't see the wall. We hide ourselves because we don't want to be hurt. And that's not a bad thing. We need to be able to have defenses. But we need to have healthy defenses. But that lack of vulnerability means that we can't be seen, that we hide, and as a result, we can't be loved. Nor can we really love. It's very hard to love through those walls. It's impossible to be loved through letting others love us. Why do we put them up? Because this person who I thought loved me hurt me. And so I'm unlovable. And so, like this woman, we hide. We see others as a threat. Particularly, though, who's the best example of this in Scripture? Who's the best example of this in Scripture? That we have as sort of like an archetype of shame and a lack of vulnerability. Who said it? No, further back. Eve. Adam and Eve, but Eve. We're going to compare her a little bit later on. There's a sort of archetype of shame. Adam and Eve, in this sort of second creation story, remember, there are two creation stories. Listen to the theology department. We don't take this literally, but we, we, we want to see the deeper meaning here, trying to convey about who we are as humans in this phenomenon of shame. The eat of the tree, before they were, this is John Paul II's whole thing in Theology of the Body, they, they knew who they were, they knew who God was, they saw themselves as God saw them, so they were, they were happy to be, to be without clothes, to be naked. And all of a sudden they ate, and then things got confused. They, they didn't see themselves as God saw them, so they hid themselves, the little fig leaves. And they wanted to hide themselves from God who was walking around the garden. Why? Because instead of seeing him as a loving father, he became a threat. If he sees us, he's going to be angry at us. He's going to punish us. He's going to condemn us. So he's hiding from God because they're insecure. They don't feel safe. So whenever we don't feel safe, we want to hide. Want to hide, just like Adam and Eve. Now, there are other sort of stories in Scripture where we see individuals here, particularly women, Hiding, not wanting to be seen because they're shame. Can anyone give me another example of another very famous one? I can guess. I should ask the theology department back there. Come on. That's why. No, she was ashamed because, of course, her infertility. Who else? New Testament. For 12 years, she was the woman with the hemorrhage. As you see it in different scripture passages in the Gospels, but if you want to get to this one, it's Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26. See, it had this hemorrhage, this bleeding, 
Uh, and in the Old Testament, if you had this females had this uncontrolled bleeding, you were considered ritually impure. You were an outcast, like if you had leprosy. God was punishing you for some reason. And you couldn't go around crowds. And so scripture tells us, and this woman, she had seen all the doctors, but they just made it worse. And so she wanted to be healed. So what does she do? She creeps up behind Jesus in a crowd and says, even if I touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. And so she reaches out and touches the hem of the garment. But Jesus feels the power go out of him and then turns around and says, who touched me? And the crowd disperses. And the woman was ashamed. She was in the crowd. She was hiding. She did not want to be seen but yet she was desiring this healing. And she would have imagined 12 years, particularly under the old Jewish law and the way that a lot of times people would have treated her. She'd have felt, God's punishing me. I'm a terrible person. I'm dirty. I'm filthy. No one loves me. And she would have been on the outskirts. And we're going to go back to her. We're going to go back to her a little bit later on. But she, along with the Samaritan woman, feeling this tremendous shame and this isolation, both of them apart from the community. Shame makes us sort of, even though we might be in the midst of people, remove ourselves from true community, from being seen, from being known, from being loved, from being encountered. So what happens, though? Let's talk about this. And this is where I want to try to have us maybe do a little little exercise or a little interior reflection that if we are feeling shame and insecurity for something that we've done or done to us, we've been hiding, quite possibly hiding for a very long time, we've been beating ourselves up, we've been comparing ourselves, we've sort of removed ourselves from authentic communion with others, we've isolated ourselves what tends to be our number one habit or what tends to be the number one, I don't want to call hobby because I don't want to make light of this, that really makes this tension, this interior anxiety worse? So shame, yeah, and insecurity can make us feel pretty bad about ourselves. But as you all probably know, when we've lived with shame, or even if we've lived with guilt, that's turned into shame, can lead to a lot of anxiety, a lot of tension, a lot of sleepless nights. What is the connector? What is the thing that really makes this worse when we're isolated? Who wants to say? What is it? Comparison, yeah, but you're comparing interiorly. What do we like to do? Whenever we're feeling insecure and feel ashamed. Pull, pull away from God. We pull away from God, but it's something we do interiorly. Where do we like to live? Do we like to live in here or in here? In here. And what do we like to do in here? We like to overthink. We like to ruminate. We like to go over and over and over the past what we've done, what people are thinking about us, what they've done to us. If that overthinking and that rumination that truly leads to anxiety and makes it spiral out of control. How many of you here, up in here, sometimes like to ruminate? 
Sometimes, other, other ones are lying. Maybe they're ruminating right now, so they're not paying attention, quite possibly. But it is. Because in our heads, if we're not talking to other people, if we're not externally processing, if we're not going to confession or talking to friends and we're in here, who are we listening to? Listening to ourselves or what we might call, or what I might call here, the inner critic or the accuser. We all have one. It's basically when the conscience turns on us. The conscience is one like, hey, you did wrong. Let's, let's, let's get this fixed. When that conscience turns into the accuser, you're a bad person because you did this. If people found out, can they, they could never love you. How could you do this? Why would, why would these people do this to you? Because obviously you're bad. So on a psychological level, we could call this the inner critic. And again, I'm not saying that I believe the devil works. And he can go. And so the evil one, I don't like to attribute everything to the devil because we are our own worst enemies most of the time. The devil just kind of lets us do our own thing. But when he sees a weakness, he can often poke. And in Scripture, what is, in the Old Testament in particular, and even the New Testament, what is one of the names for Satan, the evil one, the accuser? You did this. You're guilty. You're a terrible person. And when we live in our heads and overthink rather than our hearts and love and be loved, we start listening to these lies. We start listening to the lies. And we lock ourselves up. And that's where the evil one wants. Stay in the dark so I can whisper to you, you're, you're terrible. God could never love you. No one could love you. You're a horrible person. How could you do this? This happened to you, but it's all your fault. We've all heard that before. It's the opposite of the voice, as we're going to see, of the advocate. Advocare, to speak on behalf of. But if we're locked in our heads, there's no advocate. Say, no, no, you're not a bad person. The Father loves you. You're weak. You're imperfect. We all are. That's the voice of the advocate. We're going to look at the voice of the advocate a little bit later on. But we get trapped alone. For those in here who are nerds and know the Lord of the Rings, that's Grimma Wormtongue speaking of Theoden. As he's, he's just sort of hunching his little chair and he's whispering in his ear. He's weak. No, this person's a liar. You, you can't win. You've got to cast that, that demon out. You've got to call him out. But what happens, that's what happens when we don't live in community. We don't reveal ourselves to others. We don't let people see us. So imagine that interior monologue, dialogue, of the Samaritan woman. So if she's had five husbands, this has probably been going on for at least 20 years. Or this other woman with the hemorrhage for 12 years. Imagine what's been going on in her head, what the accuser has been telling him for so long, years trapped up in there, in the tower. I gave a talk a while back on, on Disney stuff. I work with college students and young women, the, the Disney princesses. What was that? 
Moana, the one from Frozen, Elsa, and then the other one, Tangled Rapunzel. Notice all three of them are trapped. Rapunzel in a tower, Elsa in her little ice castle, and Moana on the island. They're all trapped. It's like being trapped in your head. There's an accuser, at least uh, Elsa accuses herself. Moana just is sort of living that family, and the other one has the little witch person accusing her. <laughs> but what happens? They break out. They have to get out. Get out of your heads. This is why Disney knows what they're doing. Disney really knows what they're doing in Encanto, if y'all have seen that. Brilliant, brilliant film. They, they know what they're doing. They're speaking some truth. We need to be able to tap into that. And so it leads to so much anxiety, rumination, worry, keeping us in the dark, controlling us. We allow these things that we've done or done to us to control us. It's the shame controls us. And the accuser is there to let it happen. So this is the exercise I want us to sort of do, to think about. Imagine, and we all have our inner critic, we all have our accuser. So imagine you, you know, it's the weekend, you're by yourself. You could have gone, you know, boating with your friends or hanging out. But you said, I'm going to sit around and ruminate all afternoon. <laughs> I'm just going to listen to that inner critic, have a couple drinks. You know, we all know you're a terrible person. No one loves you. You have no friends. You're ugly. You're stupid. Whatever it is. Or listen to that inner, that inner critic. But imagine you could take that voice of the accuser and embody it, incarnate, and put it outside of you. So here's the grim worm tongue. Here's the person verbally now saying these things to you. And imagine your best friend walks in. Y'all are at a table, and this person is just ripping you to shreds. And your best friend, someone who maybe you do let in, who does know you, or maybe one of your family members, hears what that other person says. What is your best friend or your family member going to say to you? Dude, why are you listening to that piece of crap person? Why? Why are you friends with this person? Well, you know, no boundaries. Kick him to the curb. Get rid of him. Or imagine that you walked into your best friend having this little conversation with their inner critic. What would you tell your best friend? Girl, get rid of him or her or whatever. Don't let someone talk to you like that. Claws will come out. Take off our hoops. We're going to fight. You wouldn't put up with it. Well, how many of you would put up with, with if you saw your friend's inner critic ripping through shreds? How many of you would sit there and stand by and do nothing? Then why do we sit by and do nothing when it rips us to shreds? But we all do it, myself included. We all have our inner critic. But we all do it because of the shame, <clears throat> because We've locked ourselves up. And this is the Samaritan woman. This is the woman with the hemorrhage. This is the individual who, not because she's seeking it out, she's seeking solitude. 
She's seeking not to be seen who encounters Jesus at the well. Who Jesus wasn't just sitting there and saying, maybe I'll meet someone. He knew what was going to happen. He's the son of God. Jesus comes to encounter her when she least expected. We're going to see that at our next talk. But what I want to do is, look at that, pretty good timing. Uh, talked a little longer than I thought, but that gospel passage was probably half of what I talked about. <laughs> um, time to reflect. You know, we'll, we'll do that. About a half an hour. And feel free to talk to others, people you trust. Talk about, say, Father, I like what he just said, or he's a jerk, I don't want to listen to him, whatever. Or just take time to go look at the sea. I don't care. Don't ruminate. It's not what we're here for. That's not permitted. And ask yourselves, what are, what are my sources of shame? What is, leads me to be ashamed of myself? What am I ashamed of? It has led me to, to doubt that I'm loved or lovable, that I'm good, that God or anyone else could love me or accept me. What am I hiding? That if I reveal to someone else, they look down on me, they tear me up. What lies are we hearing from the accuser? What is the accuser telling us? What is our inner critic telling us? And maybe it's a lot of things. Maybe we want to focus on just one. What is that one thing the inner critic is telling us? Also, I want you to begin thinking, though, what are the lies and the sources of shame of your students? We talked about some of them already. What are they hearing? I'm sure sometimes in your encounters with them, they may even reveal it to you. Or if you're really perspicacious, you can notice it. You know what they're struggling with. Do you know what they're hiding? So again, as I said, we're not here to ruminate over this. We're here to to bring it. Say, Lord, walk with Jesus. Walk with the Spirit. Walk with Our Lady. Take your favorite saint. Be with me here as I do this. I'm not alone. And to be able to just pray over it. And, And imagine... You're the Samaritan woman, and you encounter Jesus for that first time. You can think about what Jesus tells you, even though we're going to look at that more next time. But spend some time reflecting on it. But one last thing before I let you all go to do this. Whenever our shame is exposed, or whatever that mirror is put to our face, either by ourselves or the people, we can have a handful of reactions. First reaction is, yeah, I really have this. This is really bad. But I know that Jesus is not here to judge me. Father's not here to to make us feel miserable. And so we begin allowing the spirit to work. We begin to say, yeah, maybe I need to go to therapy. Maybe I need to get some help. Maybe I need to talk to somebody. The other is that we run. We get rabbit in our blood. Take off. I don't want to face it. It's not here. No, la, 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 la. It doesn't exist. And that's not a good reaction. But the worst reaction is when we turn on the person who puts it in front of us. Now, I'm not saying I don't want you all to attack me today. But we get the claws come out. We're going to attack. Because if this person or this thing exists, then I'm going to be exposed. So I'm going to tear this person down. That's not a good reaction. So we get just noticing ourselves. What, what, the Pharisees, 
What do you think their problem is? Oh, they're prideful. No, they're not. The Pharisees are insecure. They're mean girls from, from high school. They are. The mean girls in your class, they're insecure. And the Pharisees, Jesus is getting more attention than them, and Jesus is calling them out. And so what do they do? We're going to tear him down. Rather than face it, rather than call to conversion. We all have that in ourselves. Not a good reaction. Don't become a Pharisee. So let's take time. I have five minutes for questions or whatever, comments. Uh, and then we can kind of move on. Well, let's close the glory be. We'll see if there's any comments or questions. And then we'll have a half an hour to come back. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. It was the beginning, is now, and shall be, world without end. Amen.